if you're a baseball fan, you probably know the name Ted Williams. He was one of the all-time greats. Well, several years ago, Ted Williams died. And upon his death, his adult children went absolutely bonkers, fighting each other over his estate. It became national news. In fact, Paul Harvey addressed it on his radio program, pointing out how the children were suing each other over who would get Ted's autographed bats. And if that weren't enough, the family actually had Ted Williams' body frozen to preserve his DNA, and they were fighting over the rights to his frozen body. To which Paul Harvey says, wait a minute, after looking at Ted Williams' kids, who wants his DNA? You see, money, and this is not a secret, we all know this, money can make people crazy, really in a way that nothing else can. And it's always hard to talk about. It's hard to talk about money. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about it even in church because it's such a sensitive topic. We always feel this undercurrent of fear and anxiety when it comes to money, wealth, possessions, finances. For others, it's, it, it becomes a great source of conflict, especially uh, in marriage or in family among siblings. Uh, but y'all, this is a topic that Jesus never shied away from. In fact, Jesus speaks of money often. But always when he does, he doesn't deal in dollars and figures. Jesus reaches below the surface every single time. For him, the issue was never money itself. The issue is the human heart. And so there are times we'll see Jesus comforting those who worry about not having enough. And there are other times we'll see Jesus rebuking those who are never satisfied even when they have too much. He's always aiming for the deeper issue, the issue of the heart. And today in Luke chapter 12, Jesus gives a vivid parable on the issue of greed. Not so much money. Money's a neutral thing. But he speaks to the heart issue of greed. And this is a parable of warning to us. It's just, it's, it's very clear uh, and, and frankly disturbing in how Jesus uh, speaks abrasively about this issue here. It's a warning. Make no mistake. But it's also a parable, I think, that it's meant to be liberating. It's meant to set us free. Now, as we read it, it may not seem very liberating, so you just have to hold on with me. We'll, we'll see it, hopefully, at the end together. Uh, but here's the context. Jesus is teaching the crowds. Luke actually tells us at the beginning of chapter 12, thousands have come to hear him, so many that they are stepping on each other just to get close to Jesus. And right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, some brash young man interrupts him. Look at Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. 
For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now, this scene is not quite as awkward as it may appear. Um, Jesus was considered a rabbi. He was a teacher, and therefore he was viewed as having authority to make these kinds of judgments. So when this man asks him to make a judgment uh, on the inheritance, that was not outside of the realm of uh, Jesus's authority or a rabbi's authority. And so here we can make some assumptions here that this, this man is probably the younger brother, the one who had a lesser claim on the inheritance. And so he wants Jesus, the authority figure, he wants Jesus to tell his older brother to make it right, divide it rightly, and get it taken care of. Now that, you know, in, in, in the ordinary course of life, that's not the strangest request in the world. It's fairly normal. But you notice what Jesus says right away? He makes it very clear. This is not my mission and my purpose. I'm not the judge and arbitrator in, in these types of matters. This is not the authority that I came to wield. And instead, Jesus uses this as an opportunity to address a deeper issue. What is the root issue here? Not just for this young man, but for the entire crowd that surrounds him. The deeper issue is the heart. It's the greed that consumes the heart. See what he says again in verse 15? Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Now, most people, I think, would agree with what Jesus is saying here. But at the same time, most people wouldn't think that this applies to them. We agree with what he's saying, but, but this applies only to certain people, not really to me. See, I am many things, but greedy isn't one of them. That's what I like to tell myself. Greedy people are, you know, completely self-absorbed, always scheming to get more and more, never satisfied, stab somebody in the back if they have to to get ahead, to get what they want. I'm not like that. But you notice how Jesus says, be on your guard against every form of greed. You don't have to be rich to be greedy. You don't have to be an immoral backstabber to be a greedy person. Y'all, and think about it. If I'm always worried about money, always checking my accounts, always nervous about the economy, is that not potentially a form of greed? Or what if I'm just stingy? I'm not rich. I'm not trying to be rich. But I but I I don't let go of what I have. I won't let go and live generously. I'm not a generous person. Is that not a form of greed? See, in those cases, I wouldn't see myself as greedy. I just see myself as wise and prudent. But in truth, my life is, is being consumed by money. My decisions are driven by money. My heart is wrapped up in it. And therefore, I would say, this is a form of greed. It's not the most obvious form. It's not what we typically think of. But if money is my foundation, if it's my 
if it's my decision making mechanism, it's always about money. I'm always worried. I'm always thinking. I'm always holding on tight. Then y'all, at least from my perspective and in my own heart, I've got to acknowledge this. That is a form of greed. And see, this is what makes Jesus's words so profound. He says, not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. See, greed carries with it the assumption that my value, my security, my hope, and my future are all tangible things. Things that can be measured, that can be monetized, that can be earned and saved and spent. But the scripture declares something altogether different. That our value and security and hope and future, these things come from God. And they depend on the grace of God. Your life will never consist of your possessions. And this is why the Apostle Paul speaks so bluntly on this issue when he says to Timothy, this is 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says, in the end, greed only results in grief and destruction. Your life does not consist of your possessions. It never did, and it never will. And now comes the parable to support what Jesus is saying. He's given us the warning. He's shown us where he's taking us. Now he's going to tell a story to illustrate, to drive the point home. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. One of the interesting features in this parable, this is the only parable of Jesus where God appears by name as one of the characters in the story. Some parables picture God as a father or a vineyard owner. Here he's simply God. God speaks. And this is also the only parable where God straight up calls someone a fool. And so what makes this man a fool? That's the question. Because in some ways, he actually appears to be pretty wise and strategic. He's got a lot of business acumen here. He's pretty sharp 
guy, at least on the surface. What makes him a fool? Well, let's just follow where the parable leads us. Remember how Jesus begins? He says, the land of a rich man was very productive. So this guy was already rich, but now he experiences an especially fruitful harvest, more than he can even contain. And you notice up front, there's a little detail here. Uh, Jesus says the land was productive. He doesn't say the rich man was productive, although that may have been the case. But no, his land was productive. Y'all, who makes the land productive? God does. This bumper crop was a gift from God. But the man doesn't see it that way. In fact, all throughout this parable, he never once mentions God or thanks God. He simply reasons to himself, how am I going to store all my crops? Then a light bulb goes off. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones so that I can store all my grain and my goods. Now, at one level, that plan may have the ring of wisdom to it. Certainly there are people uh, from a purely, uh, you know, rational, secular perspective would say that's, that's the wise thing to do here. You don't want it to go to waste. Um, I have more than I need, so I'm going to increase my storage capacity, right? That's the plan. Save for a rainy day, perhaps. Build up for retirement. There's nothing wrong with that. But y'all step back with me for just a minute. This is not spelled out in the parable itself, but it would have been apparent to the Jewish crowd listening to Jesus, these people who would have been very well versed in the Old Testament and the law of God. There were several laws given in the Old Testament concerning giving and generosity. The most famous is the law of the tithe, where the people of Israel were commanded to bring a tenth of their seed, their fruit, their flocks to the Lord. The, the first fruit of their produce belonged to God. There was also a very gracious law that we might call the law of gleaning, where Israel was commanded to leave the outer parts, the outer edges of their harvest alone. Don't harvest it. Don't bring it in. So that the poor and the needy could come and gather food for themselves on the edges of the fields. This was a very tangible way for the people of Israel to show love for their neighbor. Now, my goal is not to press too hard on this parable right here, but I do want us to notice that tithes and gleanings are nowhere to be found in this rich man's plans. Even though he's been blessed with abundantly more than what he needs, he gives no thought at all to the needs of others or the command of God. And so, y'all, I, I want to give us a principle here before we really get to the heart of the parable. Some of us are prone to say, I would be generous if I had more to give. Or one day, when I'm doing better financially, then I'll be generous. Once our student loan debts are paid off, once we get out of this credit card debt, or whatever it may be, once the kids grow up and get out of college, then I'll be generous one day. 
And y'all, that may sound noble. It may feel noble to say it, but it's actually poisonous. Because generosity, as God defines it, is never dependent on your level of wealth. A generous heart, a generous heart does not depend on a certain level of financial cushion before I can begin to live generously. In fact, y'all, some of the world's most generous people actually have very little to give in the way of money. They have no financial cushion to speak of, and yet they're incredibly generous. See, the money isn't the point. The point is the heart. Generous living comes from a generous heart. It's not a matter of dollars, figures, and percentages. It doesn't matter how much you have to give in the account. It's the heart behind the generosity. And so I, I want us to be very careful on this. I've got to be careful on this. If I excuse myself from generosity because I just don't have anything to give or I don't have much to give, how is a jump in income going to magically change my heart? Greater wealth will not make you more generous. If anything, you may become less generous as the accounts increase. If you're not living generously now with what you have, who's to say you're going to begin to be generous later? That doesn't actually make any sense. That's not how the heart works. And here's why. Look at what the man in the parable says in verse 19. Now he's speaking to himself, right? And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, nobody actually talks like this. Nobody speaks to their own soul like this, except more in, you know, kind of in poetic language. We see it in the Psalms sometimes. You and I don't talk like this. But of course, Jesus is using this kind of language to make a point. Deep down in this man's soul, at the core of his very identity, what is his greatest treasure? His greatest treasure is himself, his own comfort, his own happiness his own foundation for his future, his own uh, self-centered celebration of what he has. See, he's, this is a person who's defined by his wealth, and so he feels entitled to enjoy his wealth as the chief aim of his life. This is, this is what he's worked for, so that he can sit back and enjoy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, verse 20, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? God speaks and says, You foolish man! Tonight you will die. Your soul is required of you, meaning your life is your very soul has been given to you on loan. It belongs to God. And now, your time is up. Your name's being called. Who will own what you've prepared? Someone else, but not you. Not you. Now, y'all, this is a dramatic end of the parable, right? 
this man dies. But the, I don't want, it might be very easy for us to look at the end of the parable and say, oh my goodness, as if the man's death is really the point that Jesus is aiming for. The man's death is not the ultimate point of the parable. Uh, the point is not, the lesson is not, if you're greedy, God's going to kill you. Uh, as if Jesus is trying to strike fear into the hearts of people to scare them out of their greed. That's, that, that doesn't work. That's not Jesus's point. The point is given in the final verse. Look at verse 21 as Jesus summarizes the parable. He says, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, this, go, this is what Jesus warned us about back in the Sermon on the Mount. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his own soul? What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul in the process? Point being, your life, your very soul, is a gift from God. And as such, you and I, we belong to God. And we owe him everything. He created us. He gave us all that we are and all that we have. We owe him everything in return. So what makes this man a fool is not that he was wealthy, as if there's anything inherently wrong with money itself. No, he was a fool because he may, he, uh, he was not a fool, rather. He was not a fool simply because he planned for the future. We all make plans for the future. We'd be fools not to do that. Be, having money, making plans, those, that's, that's not what made this man a fool. No, this man was a fool because he substituted wealth for God. He substituted something else for God. He made something else his value, his security, his hope, and his future. Therefore, he forfeited his own soul. When Jesus says this person was not rich toward God, what does that mean exactly? That he didn't tithe? He wasn't generous to the poor? Yes, I think that's part of it. But those things ultimately spring from the fact that this man didn't treasure God. He lived for himself only rather than for God's glory. He lived for what was temporary and not eternal, for what was fleeting but not lasting. And so when his soul was required of him, he had nothing to show for it. He had nothing of true value to show for himself, for his life, everything he had, everything that mattered to him was going to have to be left behind and then spent by somebody else. At the end of his life, his soul was shriveled up. There was nothing to him that was real and eternal and lasting, only that which was temporary. And therefore, he was a fool. Now, coming back to something that I said earlier, I think most of us would look at a parable like this and say, well, I'm not like that. I'm not that greedy and foolish. This, this isn't really about me. But remember Jesus's introduction. Remember how Jesus introduces the whole parable. He says, be on your guard against every form of greed. Anything in my heart that seeks value, security, hope, and future 
outside of God, anything in me that causes me to close my heart against generosity, anything that roots me in this world only rather than in the world to come, that is a form of greed. It may not be greed in its most obvious form, but if that's in my heart, then, then Jesus' words are meant to, to, to sting. They're meant to, uh, to be abrasive to us here. That there are, if I'm honest, if I look in the mirror, Kyle has greed in his heart. I just do. And it takes on different forms, perhaps. Maybe I'm not as bad as I could be. But I still have a heart that seeks value, security, hope, and future in the things of this world rather than anchoring them in Christ. And so, y'all, as we close, this is the, this is the conviction that we, I think we just, we're just meant to feel here. Jesus tells this parable, not just for a select few. He gives it to the whole crowd. Everybody needs this. I want to point us back, though, to what Paul says to Timothy. Remember I quoted earlier from 1 Timothy 6, the desire for wealth pierces us with many griefs and leads us to destruction. We, can, we will wander away from the faith uh, if, we, if we begin to love money in an inordinate kind of way. Well, there is a gracious alternative. Right after that, Paul says this to Timothy, the pastor of Ephesus. He says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, and really that's all of us, tell them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Paul is echoing Jesus here. There is a true treasure, a treasure in heaven, a good foundation for our eternal future, life itself, that we are, that we are storing up as we are generous and rich in good works, as we fix our hope on God. And y'all, here's the point. We are called to be rich toward God because God has been endlessly rich toward us. All these vital things that I've continued to bring up throughout this message, our value, our security, our hope, our future, all these things have been graciously given to us already in Jesus Christ. All of these things are filled to the brim and secure forever, given to us. We can't earn these things. You can't hoard these things and hold on to them because they're not merely temporary and tangible. Your value, security, your hope, your future, you receive these things and you enjoy them as gifts from a loving Father. They're gifts from God. Y'all, the only reason we're here right now, the only reason, is that by faith in Jesus, we have salvation for our souls. God has been rich toward us. And so may we live in light of his riches granted to us. 
May we live with humility and with gratitude that says all the good things I have are gifts from God. And may we live richly toward him with open and generous hearts, knowing that our true and lasting treasure is in heaven. How do we destroy greed in the heart? Or, or better yet, how does God destroy the greed in our hearts? Through making us humble and grateful as we see the riches we have in Christ and then making us generous, living richly toward God because all of his riches are ours as a free gift by faith in his son. Greed gets choked out. Greed will starve in our hearts when there's humility and gratitude and a resulting generosity. May God make it so in Christ's name. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you this morning for, for the, this, this message that we just finished, how we ended, that it is the grace of Jesus Christ that destroys greed in our hearts. When we recognize that every good thing, and especially the best thing, our salvation, is a gift, a gracious gift. Not something we can take, take credit for, not something we hoard and hold to ourselves, not something that we root our lives in, in this world only. But Lord, make us humble and grateful as we look to Jesus Christ and realize that all the riches that you have to give, Father, you have given to us in your Son, Jesus. And that we receive that as a free gift by faith. We do not earn it. And so, Father, give us, I pray this morning, as we recognize this grace, as we recognize, Lord, the wonder and the truth and the glory of your gospel, of your love. Lord, choke greed out of us. Root it right out of us, Lord. Every form of greed that Jesus calls us to be aware of, to be on our guard against. Lord, where we, maybe uh, we're not um, obviously greedy, that it's just something people know us for and would say about us. Maybe we're more subtly that way, that we're just prone to anxiety and worry, that we're prone to hold on tightly rather than to live generously. Lord, those are forms of greed that, uh, that prevent us from being rich toward you. Help us to see that and help us to see, Lord, that our soul shrivels up in that case. We think we're being wise, but we're not. We're living as fools. We're not trusting you to provide. We're not, Lord, uh, giving you the, the first fruits, the very best of what we are and what we have. And Lord, teach us, I pray this morning, teach us to be generous in, in all sorts of different ways. It's not just giving money. It's not just writing checks or swiping a card. We can be generous in all sorts of ways. Lord, generous with our time. Generous with our words. Generous with our, with our hands and feet as we serve others. It doesn't have to be one kind of, of, uh, of giving only. But Lord, whatever it is, I pray at the heart level, as Jesus Christ always reached down to the heart, 
that we would see this parable um, and feel the sting of it, to feel the conviction of it, that I have greed in my heart, I just do, but that we'd also be liberated. Lord, we, we, we can be, we should be, we must be rich toward you because you have been so infinitely rich toward us. This is not just a, a, a command to be generous. We have received the greatest, most lasting, most endlessly wonderful gift there is. And so, Lord, make us generous by default. Make it it's just who we are because we know Christ Jesus and we follow him. Make us rich toward God and rich in how we live. Uh, the eternal riches, Lord, that you've granted to us, let temporary things be to us held with open hands because we have all that we need in Christ Jesus. And we pray it in his awesome name. Amen.